Hello, readers. Coming up, it's my chat with Charles Farrell on Low Life. First, I wanted to encourage you to check out our website at booksonpod.com. You can sort through past shows by episode number, book title, author's last name, or sort by category. For instance, select the biographies and memoirs or sports category for episode number 87 with Jim Gray on Talking to Goats. This is Jim Gray, sportscaster. I'm the author of the book, Talking to Goats. I've enjoyed my time here with Trey on Books on Pod. Hope you enjoy the listen and hope you enjoy the book. Hello, readers. Charles Farrell is a guy who has operated just on the other side of the relative edge of what many believe to be good and bad in his life as a jazz pianist and boxing manager. And he's just written a book about his uniquely wild ride. It's called Low Life, a memoir of jazz, fight fixing, and the mob. Charles, thank you for the time. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, Terry. Thanks for inviting me. I appreciate it. It's my pleasure. This book was incredible, to say the least. And you write about a lot of bad things that happened in your life. A lot of it stems from working for and with the Italian mob as a jazz pianist and boxing manager. Was there any apprehension to share this story because of the sensitive subject matter? I I won't say that there was no apprehension, but there was very, very little. And I'll, I'll tell you why. I mention names when I can mention them, when I'm free to mention them. Uh, either the person has died or uh, the statute of limitations has run and there's no actual threat. But what I don't do is I don't give up anybody. And uh, presumably the people who know me understand that I don't give up anybody and it's better to just leave me alone. So how did you end up getting passionate about music, Charles? Oh, I I come from a musical family. Uh, It was sort of predetermined. Um, My mother was a very, very good jazz vocalist. Her father was was an excellent uh, pianist, arranger, composer, uh, orchestrator, band leader, and his father was a vocalist. So uh, I started playing the piano when I was three. I could play what I heard when I was three. And uh, it was assumed that that's what I was going to do. And you also talk a lot about your grandparents, Ruby and Betty. They were instrumental in your development as a human. You said that they brought you to the beautiful parts of low life. What do you mean by that? Well, my grandparents were people who really lived to have a good time. It was important to them. They were, they were uneducated. They were both illiterate. And they wanted to have fun. And so they like to go to, you know, the, the racetrack. They like to gamble. They like to go to amusement parks. Um, they like to go out to eat. They like to do things that for a child would be unbelievably exciting. And they made me a full participant, which was pretty unusual. I wasn't a kid who was tagging along. I mean, when they went to the racetrack, I bet at the racetrack. Um, you know, when they went to carnivals, I went to carnivals. Um, you know, they, they smoked cigarettes, I smoked cigars. <laughs> it was just understood that I was, you know, involved, engaged. Do you remember the first bet that caused you to fall in love with gambling? The, the first real bet that caused me to fall in love with gambling, the, the big one, was at a racetrack in Maine, where 
I had learned to read fairly recently. I was maybe, I learned to read when I was three. So maybe I'm four here, something like that. And I'd been reading about the Orinoco River. And there was a, there was a horse named Orinoco who was running. And my grandparents were horrible gamblers. They gambled the worst way that you can possibly gamble, which was they gambled by hunches and signals and portents. And, you know, and so I thought, well, I've been reading about the Orinoco River. So I have to bet on Orinoco, which I did. And she came in. Um, Ruby gave me five bucks to bet. And I'm trying to remember what the odds were. They were something like 14 to one. They were an incredible, you know, she was a horse who had no business winning and she won. And so they handed me all of the money. <laughs> so here I am with, you know, 80 something dollars. I forget exactly what it was. Um, that was all mine to spend. And, you know, grown men working day jobs in, in the 1950s, 1955, 1956, weren't making that much money in a week. So that was it. Do you remember uh, a big expense that you paid for with that money? I would have known to take people out to dinner. I'd already learned that when they did you a favor, you took them out to dinner. So I would have done that. I would have spent my own money. It would have been a point of honor. Um, and I probably did that. I probably did that with friends for, for a period of time. And I, if I, I undoubtedly took little girls from my grade school out to, out to lunch or out to dinner. Um, but no, I don't. I, I should, but I don't. Charles, what do the SATs have to do with your development as a hustler? Well, I dropped out of school. I dropped out of school basically just after eighth grade. But I figured out that things like aptitude tests are tailor-made for males who grow up in the northeast part of the United States. All of the questions are softball questions geared to people with my background. So I knew I could get unbelievable scores on my SATs. And in those days, there was no real monitoring system. I, I, you know, I don't know how it's done nowadays, but in those days, you just had to sign and nobody looked at what you signed. So I would take SAT tests for kids at $500 a shot. And I would guarantee them a combined score of uh, 1500. I said, that's the least I would do. And now over a period of a number of years, I took about 10 of them and, and, you know, made money that way. And I, I don't think I ever, I didn't, I never got uh, a combined score of 1500. I always did a lot better than that. Hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I'm assuming that I put a bunch of rich kids through college. <laughs> so quitting school just after eighth grade means that you're essentially deciding to become an adult as you're reaching adolescence. By the age of 15 in 1966, you were living alone on Beacon Hill in Boston at the onset of the hippie movement along the East Coast. And during that time, you were still honing your musical abilities, even ending up sitting a few feet away from the legendary John Coltrane, who was playing at a club called the Jazz Workshop. Why was he the only musician you ever saw in person who scared you? And how did that time around him impact your playing? I had already started playing professionally. And I was on a, a pretty fast track as far as that goes. I was already working with good musicians. And I was confident that I'd have a good career in jazz. And Ruby used to say to me, you have to study. You can't just play. 
no matter no matter what you think you can do, there are things that you need to learn. And I and I was arrogant, and I'm still arrogant. It's it's a it's a fault. Um, and I thought, no, I can hear whatever I want to hear, and I can play whatever I can hear, and I can do anything I want. And I was I was very much enthralled to Coltrane. I, I, I loved his playing, but hearing it in person. I understood for the first time in my life, the nature of work, that here was a guy who had extraordinary talent, but he also had, um, you know, a voracious work ethic. And I understood that no matter what I could do on my own, it wasn't going to be enough. And I would have to start to figure out how to work. And it was a very dispiriting experience. I wasn't happy about it at all. Um, and I was frightened, and I, I, I was angry at Coltrane. Hmm. Janis Joplin tried to take you to bed at some point in the mid to late 1960s. How did that go down? I went to hear a different band at a club in Boston called the Psychedelic Supermarket, which was in uh, Kenmore Square. And I was sitting on the floor, um, which is what you did back then. And she was – she had – I guess, gone out of the club and she was coming back into the club and she saw me sitting there and she grabbed me by the hand and she said, you should come with me. <laughs> and, and I didn't do it. And um, it would have made for a much, much better story if I had. <laughs> but I, it's funny. I, you know, I, was, I was about 15, maybe 16, something like that. And she looked like an old woman. She was probably 25 or 26 at the time. And I thought, what? I, I'm, I thought I'm, I'm not a groupie. I'm, I'm, I've outgrown that. I don't need to do that anymore. And so I didn't do it. But I, I still, in the book, I, I really, I only mentioned it because I thought it was a, an interesting element of what mid-60s, mid to late 60s culture in America was that uh, somebody who was on the verge of being an icon could do something like that in a completely unguarded setting. I mean, I, I don't think there's a counterpart to that anymore. Hmm. There probably isn't. So your piano skills actually got you a lot of work in the 1970s, and much of that was playing in mob clubs. Which was the worst of these clubs that you played in and why? Well, interestingly enough, the worst of the clubs was a club called the Squire, where nothing happened to me. But I was pretty inured to playing in dangerous clubs. I, I saw a lot of bad stuff happening. I was, you know, I I was pretty comfortable with it. Um but that club scared me because its only real purpose um, was to have um, was to take care of various illegal activities, and it was being done on many, many different levels. And there were police talking to to rats, and there were rats talking to you know mob guys, and there were deals being made. And I thought somebody's going to get hurt here. 
I really believed it. I, I, I was really, I, I tended not to get frightened, but I was very frightened of that club. And I had tried not to work in that club. I had imposed conditions that I thought would keep the owner from hiring me. I was backing up a mob guy, small time mob guy named Freddie Garino, who um, engineered accidents for a living. That's mostly what he did. He would set them up, you know, um, and he was very good at it. He was a very funny guy. He was a very charming guy and everybody liked him. And I demanded double pay and I demanded that a grand piano be brought into the club and that I not have to play a fourth set, which was the four, four sets was the standard at the time. And I thought they'll never go for this. And then they did it. So I was stuck in this club. And the owner was a guy named Rich, Richard Castucci. And he was an old time mobster and he was known as a killer. And at the end of the first set, I said to Freddie Carino, I don't want to play here. I just, I just don't want to be here. And he said, well, okay, let's go tell Richard. And I thought, okay, this could be very dangerous. And I, we went and we told Richard and he said, Charles doesn't think that this is the right room for him. He doesn't think that the people necessarily like his music. And Castucci was absolutely in a monotone said, okay. And that was it. But a week later he was gunned down by, um, by um, Whitey Bulger's partner, Stephen Fleming and left in a, the back of a car. So I think I got out sort of just in time. Yeah. It was interesting to read that you were so willing to stick up for yourself and ask for what you perceived to be fair value for your musical skills. Where did you get that fearlessness from? Because not everybody handles situations like that in such a manner. A lot of people will kowtow to a situation and end up underselling themselves in the process. One of the things I figured out about mobsters and mob clubs and the kind of atmosphere that pervades them is that they want what they think they can't have and they want things done a certain way. And I understood how to play for mobsters. I understood their sentiment, and that's a big thing. I, not only did I know the repertoire, but I understood the way to impart a specific feeling into that repertoire. So I could play in a way that they particularly liked, but I also had a vast knowledge of all kinds of music and so people could come in and they could sit in or they could sing and i could play in whatever key suited them best and so i became a kind of valuable commodity and they were willing to pay extra to have me play there but the other thing is after a little while if you're getting paid more than someone else you get the reputation of being paid more than someone else and people actually are willing to do that because it confers a kind of status on them. We've got the highest paid player playing here. So um, it always worked. And I, I, I don't think, I don't think I ever offended anybody. Despite the fact that you were making a decent living for yourself, you decided to stop playing in public for 20 years at the age of 27. Why? I'd been playing in public for 15 years at that point. And a lot of times I was playing seven, seven, seven nights a week. And I was doing TV and I 
I was doing radio and I was doing sessions and I was recording and I was practicing the piano between five and six hours a day. And I'm not by nature a performer. I, I, I don't like being in public. I don't like being the center of attention. Even, even doing this book for me is something I, if someone hadn't invited me to do it and paid me to do it, I would never have done it. Um, so I was burnt out. You know, I didn't, I didn't like the music. I didn't like the clubs. I didn't like the business. Um, I was done playing jazz. I didn't really particularly like playing jazz anymore. And so I thought I'd do something else. And speaking of, why did you end up in Vegas in the 1980s? And how did it change the trajectory of your life, Charles? Well, I can't talk about a lot of what I did in the 80s, unfortunately. Why is that? Because there are legal issues and there are statutory issues. So, you know, there are things that the statute doesn't, doesn't, uh, statute of limitations doesn't apply to. So I just can't talk about them. And there are also people who, some people who I like very much, who did me favors and my talking about, I, I can't can't talk about the 80s without talking about them and talking about them would be a betrayal of trust. And there are also people who are still around uh, who would be really upset with my talking about them. And, you know, one of the ways I protect myself is I'm careful about who I talk about and who I don't. Um, but the 80s, I got involved in gambling and I got involved in fight fixing. And Vegas was the best place to do that for a lot of different reasons. Culturally, it was by far the best place you could you could do those things. And I could earn a good living, and I could earn a good living without having to work very hard. Did you get into boxing managing specifically because of the fight fixing? No, no, I didn't. Um, I got into boxing management because... I knew a lot about boxing and I was naive. I thought because I could tell who could really fight and who couldn't really fight. And I got along with boxers. Um, all I really needed were, was a stable of really good fighters and, a, and my matchmaking skills I thought were sufficient to move them up the ladder quickly. And that was uh, an incredibly naive way to see boxing as a business. And so the meat of this book takes place in the 1990s in and around the sport of boxing. How did you end up managing the legendary Leon Spinks, and what sort of physical and mental shape was he in when you started working with him? Well, as is true of a lot of things in my life, I, I had no intention of, uh, of, of doing what I wound up doing. I, I, didn't, I didn't have any interest in managing Leon Spinks. But Leon Spinks had sons who were promising. And I was in touch with a crowd in St. Louis who were fight guys, very, very good fight guys. Um, and I have to say, boxing is an incredibly racist business, mm. um, as is true of many big businesses. And so there were, there were a group of black guys in St. Louis who really knew the fight game and they had great, great fighters. And these fighters were not marketable. They didn't have a, you know, the kind of storyline that you needed. They didn't have a narrative. They weren't necessarily telegenic. And they fought in a very sophisticated style that couldn't be read by the mainstream boxing public. 
it was too subtle. It was too developed. Um, but Leon had a couple. He actually actually had three sons who were fighters. And these guys in St. Louis said, "We, you know, we can't do anything with them, but you can. Would you like to manage them?" I said, "Yeah, I will manage the second generation of Sphinxes, you know, Sphinx brothers." Um, and so I decided to have two two of them turn pro on a card down south, safe card. And Leon volunteered to come along and fight as a, it would help the publicity, it would help the gate. And I thought it was a nice idea. And it turns out, I knew that Leon had not, it was not the fighter he'd been when he won the heavyweight championship or anything close to that, but I had no idea how depleted he was, you know? And I wound up in that fight getting him beaten up, which I certainly had no intention to do. I put him in with somebody who was a fairly mediocre fighter, but a capable fighter who often took dives and I didn't tell him to take a dive. So they went eight rounds in just hellish weather. It was just incredibly hot in the ring. It was you know, something you wouldn't ask anybody to do as a favor. And Leon lost the decision. And so I made a backroom deal with the manager of the other fighter because I needed Leon to get a win. And the record book got changed. So Leon, depending on which record book you look at now, either won by disqualification or won by a technical knockout in the ninth round. And I wound up stuck managing Leon Sphinx. What was the reason for the DQ after the fact? Uh, just something to change the record. I mean, I just it didn't matter to me what it was. I mean, I wanted Leon to win by a knockout. And uh, some record books have him listed as winning by a technical knockout. But that was all done in the back room. Oh, gotcha, gotcha. So considering that he did want to take more fights after that, was it difficult to do so? And was there this added obligation to fix those fights for him to make sure that he didn't look too bad? There were... It it would be easy to get fights for Leon Spinks. If my goal was to put Leon Spinks in any fights that we were offered because he was a former heavyweight champion. He was a former Olympic gold medalist. So he was, you know, he was a notch on people's gun belts and he was easy to beat. So I could have, had I wanted to, kind of sold him down the river and had him, you know, fix a couple of fights where he would win so that his record would stay intact and then just sell and sell and sell. But I couldn't do it. Um, you know, one of the reasons I started fixing fights, and there are a number of reasons, and, you know, I, I can't say that they're all altruistic by any means. You know, I wanted to make money. But if you're in the gym a lot, and I was in the gym a lot, and if you're around fighters a lot, you see the damage that, that, that's incurred. And increasingly, I, I couldn't bring myself to contribute to that kind of damage. It's a very complex thing because I'm doing it, I'm involved in this thing where I know people get hurt and that's a decision that I made consciously and with full awareness. But I thought if there's a way to do this where no one has to incur damage, neurological damage, that's what I'm gonna do. And so that's what I decided to do with Leon Spinks is only put him in advice that, that where he wouldn't get hurt. 
Well, being so deeply embedded in the world of boxing also gave you access to behind-the-scenes information. For instance, why do you believe that Sonny Liston took dives in each of his fights with Muhammad Ali? Sonny Liston was controlled by the mob. There was a guy named Frankie Carbo who controlled pretty much all of boxing, most powerful big figure in boxing. And one of the people he employed was a very, very good friend of mine named Al Braverman. And Al Braverman's job was basically to mind Sonny Liston, to make sure that Sonny, Al was a very, very tough character himself. And the idea was to keep Sonny Liston from getting in trouble. Sonny Liston was so much better than every other heavyweight that there were no viable contenders. He'd already beaten Floyd Patterson for the title and then knocked Floyd out in the first round in their rematch. And Floyd wound up becoming my business partner, so I knew him very, very well. Um, and he had essentially decimated the entire heavyweight division, and people didn't like him. Additionally, he, again, fought in a style that wasn't necessarily understood well by the public. So there was no money to be made with Sonny Liston. And we're also talking about a time period where you, if you were in the highest income tax bracket, you would lose 90% of, of your income to, to the IRS. So it made much more sense to put Sonny Liston in a fight. And, and bear in mind, Sonny Liston at this point was probably in his early 40s. He was listed as being 31 or so, but he was a decade or more older than that. And he didn't like to fight. Hmm. So the idea was to put him in a fight at eight to one, and you bet everything against him. And you have him take a dive, and you collect more money in 25 minutes than you would in 10 years of having to be the champion. Additionally, in a fight like that, you have him lose ambiguously, and you have the scorecards uh, showing at about even at the time that the fight is stopped. And in fact, they were the scorecards were even. There were one person was going with Ali, one with with Sonny, and the other had it a draw, if I remember correctly. So you have got it written into his contract that there's a there's a rematch clause. So you make your eight to one at whatever money you can get your hands on. This is all the illegal betting. So you're making a fortune. Then you have the rematch, and because of the inconclusive nature of the first fight, Sonny goes into the second fight anywhere between six to five and eight to five favorite. So you get to do it again for free. And so the second fight, which everyone pretty much acknowledges is fake, you don't even go through the motions of making it look real. You know, Sonny falls down for, you know, from a punch that wouldn't have troubled him ever. <laughs> and, you know, and essentially it's, it's letting the public know what you've done. So you've collected twice and you still have this heavyweight who's the most dangerous heavyweight in the world, who can be used as a playing piece to control the heavyweight division. Is there any controversy surrounding Sonny Liston's death? I think there's a lot of controversy surrounding Sonny Liston's death. You know, there are people who say that he was working for loan sharks. There are people saying that he was working for drug dealers. Um, you know, I, I have... I, I think I know why he was killed, but I, I don't know that many people agree with me. Um, I can tell you about it. Um, the same Al Braverman, who used to work with Sonny, had a fighter named Chuck Webner, 
who became sort of notorious. He's the model for the Rocky movies. And he wasn't a very good fighter. And at the end of Liston's career, just about at the end of his career, who was managing Webner, had Liston fight Webner. Well, Al Braverman was one of the most savvy boxing people I've ever met in my life. And he would have known better than anyone that Sonny Liston would kill Chuck Webner in a fight. And he would never have made that fight. The fact that he did make the fight indicates to me that it was a fixed fight, that Sonny was to lose. And Sonny didn't lose. He couldn't find a way to lose. Um, and I'm convinced that a lot of money was lost as a result of that fight. Now, Al Braveman told me straight out that the Ali fights were both fixed, which I'd always believed, but he would have been in a position to know it. When I asked him about whether Sonny was killed because of the Chuck Webner fight, he said something to the effect of ask no questions and I'll tell you no lies. Speaking of Ali, he obviously has the nickname The Greatest. Where do you rank Muhammad Ali amongst the all-time great heavyweights? Among the all-time great heavyweights, number two or number three. Um, among the all-time great fighters, this will be controversial, but probably in the top 100. Wow. Top 100. Yeah. Why is that? Um, there were, there were no heavyweights who were in the top 10, uh, or the only, oh, well, that's not quite true. There was a fighter named Ezra Charles who really shouldn't, he was the heavyweight champion, but he really shouldn't have been a heavyweight. He really was a light heavyweight, started as a middleweight. And he's certainly among the top 10 fighters who ever lived. But by the time, by the time Ali showed up, um, Boxers didn't fight as much as they had in earlier eras. And Ali had a strangely bifurcated career, you know, because he had problems with, um, you know, with the military, with the selective service, where he was um, banned from boxing for probably the three best years of his life. So we didn't see the best Ali. And by the time he came back and fought Joe Frazier, he was not nearly as good a fighter as he'd been pre-exile. So what he showed people the second time around was that he was inconquerably brave and smart and a physically strong guy who would take a good punch. But Ali spent the last part of his career as a, a good but not great heavyweight who had unbelievable ring psychology. And if you look at Sonny Liston, uh, Muhammad Ali's great performances, there are probably a half dozen and no more than that. And other ones, they're great in the sense that he exhibits remarkable character, but he takes terrible beatings. And um, I, I just, you know, he's... As an icon, he's incredibly important. He's probably the most important athlete who ever lived. And I love him and I admire him. But he's not close to being as good a fighter as people think. Considering that pretty boy Floyd Mayweather considers himself the best pound-for-pound -pound boxer of all time, do you agree with that sentiment? 
No, uh, not only is he not the greatest pound for pound boxer of all time, I'm not sure there was a point when he was ever the best fighter of his own time. He might have been, but he might not have been. And he certainly, um, he's not anything close to being an all-time great. He was a, he's a very, very fine fighter, but uh, he, he doesn't compare to even... I can think of a number of guys in the same weight division of much more recent vintage who would have killed him. You know, Ray Leonard would have uh, had an easy time with him. Thomas Hearns would have knocked him out. Roberto Duran would have savaged him. Um, you know, he was, uh, he's maybe the best manager who ever lived. You know, he's he, the best matchmaker who ever lived. Um, but no, he's, he's certainly not the greatest fighter of all time or anything close. Did you ever work with Mike Tyson, either for or against him? Not directly. Um, indirectly, a number of times. Um, I was instrumental in putting together his match with Peter McNeely, who was Tyson's first opponent after Tyson got out of prison. And I was at the meeting that set up that fight and actually brought Vin Vecchioni, who was... Um, McNeely's manager into New York to talk to Al Braverman. Al Braverman was Don King's director of boxing, among other things, to set up that fight um, because uh, King needed a fighter who Tyson was sure to be. And it was assumed that he wouldn't have any trouble with McNeely. So that fight was not fixed at all. I mean, I, re I remember watching that fight as a teenager, and McNeely just comes out flailing wildly. There was no need to try and fix that fight in any way, shape, or form. Tyson could dispatch him no problem. Well, there's a backstory to it. Um, in a sense, you're completely right. The fight was a real fight, and uh, I think the outcome was, was pretty clear. But... If, if you saw the fight, you remember the ending was, was strange because Vin Vecchioni steps into the ring with uh, McNeely on his feet throwing punches, and he steps in at 89 seconds. The backstory to this is that I'm living in Puerto Rico at the time, and I'm, I've got the mob looking for me, so I'm being a little bit careful. The night before the the, the Tyson-McNeely fight, I get a phone call from somebody I know and who said, a friend of ours wanted you to know that a bet just got placed for a million dollars, that that fight won't go 90 full seconds. He thought you might find that interesting. And I did find it interesting. Unfortunately, I wasn't in a place where I could benefit from it in any way at all, because I would have bet anything that it would be a one-round fight. But although the fight was real, Becchioni stepped into the ring to win his win his bet. Just a second before, he would have tied that ninety second mark. There are guys who have ice water through their veins, running through their veins. I, I don't think I could have done that, but Ben Becchioni is one of the kind of people who could do it. A lot of people feel like Mike Tyson's life took a turn for the worse when he lost Customato, who was his first trainer a guy who had been in and around boxing for a long time. What do you think of Customato? I think he's a chicken hawk. You know, you know the term? No, what does that mean? Pedophile. I think that Customato, like young boys. 
Oh, wow. Do you think that might have been the case with Tyson, too? I do. I've heard him talk about how he had been molested when he was a kid. Well, you know, I don't have I don't have absolute proof. I again, though, one of the people who Customato managed, trained, mentored, whatever you want to call it, was my business partner, Floyd Patterson. And Floyd Patterson never came out and said anything like that to me. But I, I, I was very clear that I don't hold D'Amato in high esteem at all. I think he's a fake as a trainer. I think he's a fake as a guru or whatever. He's, you know, a, a great teacher. And I think he liked young boys. I think, you know, there's something sort of monastically priestly about him in the worst sense of the word. And I was talking to Floyd once and I said, you know, you know what I think of Cuss. That's one really, really weird guy. And he said, you're telling me. So, I mean, you know, I, um, this is all speculative on my part and a lot of people are going to be unhappy about it. Um, but I believe it. Hmm. Although this didn't involve Customato, why did you get into a fight with the great Floyd Patterson that resulted in the two of you calling each other stupid motherfuckers? I was managing a very talentless white heavyweight. Again, white heavy, heavyweight is, is, is the holy grail in boxing. It's, it's, the, it's the model on which you can make the most money. As I said, it's an incredibly racist business. And I had a white heavyweight who, although he couldn't fight at all, had made it to the Olympic finals. And I decided to have Floyd Patterson train him. I thought it, in terms of public relations gesture, it was a very, very good idea because Patterson was a really beloved figure in boxing. And he was also a really, really good guy. Turns out he was a terrible trainer, but a wonderful guy. And anyway, my fighter had gotten a lucky draw against an undefeated fighter named Melvin Foster. My fighter's named Martin Foster. And he was about to go on TV, nationwide TV, next the week later to fight a rematch with Melvin Foster. And I thought psychologically it would be a very good idea for Martin Foster to win a fight less than a week or maybe a week or so before his TV fight and to get a first round knockout. So I fixed a fight for him to do that. And I thought it would accomplish a number of things. One, it would it would imbue Foster with a lot of confidence and it would make the other side, Melvin Foster and Melvin Foster's manager, Dennis Rappaport, a little bit nervous that I felt confident enough about my fighter to put him in that close, you know, to a televised fight. So we're sitting in Martin Foster's hotel room and Martin Foster is resting. He's lying on the bed and Floyd and I are sitting around and Floyd says to me, this is a terrible mistake. Um, you, you can't put a fighter in, he's going to be on TV next week. He's got a major fight coming up. You can't do this. You can't put him in this close. And, um, I predict that if you put him in tonight, he will get knocked out on television next week and he'll be carried out of the ring on the stretcher. Hmm. And I said, you stupid motherfucker. I said, you're his trainer. I'm his manager. I make those decisions and I know what I'm doing and you've made a terrible mistake and you're going to see that you've made a terrible mistake and you're going to apologize to me, but it's too late. You've already done it. Look at the damage. And 
Martin Foster was incapable of being moved by anything. So he actually didn't care at all. But but I mean, it was it was a terribly foolish thing for him to do. And of course, I fixed the fight and the fight lasted about 30 seconds. Mm-hmm. And Martin Foster mm-hmm. knocked out this big kid. And but the thing is that Floyd was so angry at me. He was so sure that I'd made a mistake. He said, I'm not the, and he could he struggle. He goes, the, the stupid m- motherfucker. <laughs> You're the stupid motherfucker. <laughs> anyway, so he apologized afterwards. And, you know, we were friends again. There was no harm done. But it was, uh, you know, it was a rare thing to hear Floyd Patterson call anybody a stupid motherfucker. I think I might be the only person he ever called that. Considering how many fights you fixed in, in your career as a boxing manager, somebody in and around that sport, were you ever suckered into a boxing bet that cost you big? And if so, what were the circumstances surrounding that? I was. I was the biggest bet I ever made. I lost. And to this day, I'm not sure whether I got suckered or whether I just made a foolish decision. But increasingly, I think I got suckered. Um, again, Al Braverman called me one day and he said, Something, I still remember, he said, something just came over the transom. If I told you, if I asked you what the odds would be for Stevie Collins against Reggie Johnson, what would you say? And I said, it's a pick fight, you know, six to five either way. And he says, what, what would happen if I told you I can get you three to one on Collins? I said, well, I would ask you what's wrong. What do you know that I need to know? And he said, that's the right question. Nothing. He goes, I don't get it myself, but there's this fight. It was for a world title, and it was a fighter, uh, two fighters who were not particularly well connected. So when that happens, and these are two fighters, neither of whom had ever been knocked out, you start to look about. You look at where the money should go, where you know who favors how how business favors one over the other. And Stevie Collins was an Irishman who had business to do as champion in Europe. And so I thought, okay, this is a really close fight. It's gonna go to a decision. Neither guy has ever been and never was knocked out. Um, And business favors Collins and a three to one, it's a a great bet. And Braverman said, just the only thing is it's gotta be a big bet. And I managed to get, it was either 420 or 430,000. And you'd think I'd remember it, but I don't. And the only way I could get the bet placed is I had to fly into Santo Domingo with cash. And I had to fly in under the radar because you can't go into the Dominican Republic with more than $5,000. You have to declare it. So I got a, I knew somebody who was able to fly me in and I had friends, gangsters in Santo Domingo who picked me up in an airfield, a cane field in the middle of nowhere in Samana. And um, I had a bodyguard, and we drove to Santo Domingo where we watched the fight. And um, it turned out to be a majority decision, and the other guy won. You know, there were there were bodyguards with one million two hundred fifty thousand dollars for me if I'd won, and that would have been it for me. I would have been out of not just boxing. I would have been out of everything. I would have retreated. I would have. I was living in the Caribbean anyway, and I would have stayed in the Caribbean. Um, and afterwards, I thought, the way to make money on this is you do this 10 times. You bet 10 people. And you've made 
$4,300,000 if you can get, you, you know, you have to come up with the money. You have to show the $12.5 million somehow. But there are a lot of gangsters who can get their hands on $12.5 million if they have to. And you make this bet at various places throughout the world. And all you have to be able to do is buy two judges in order to have your bet win. And I think, and I hate to say this because Al Braverman saved my life once and I love him, but it's very, very possible that I was in on a, on a scam. I, I, you know, what I know now I'm about to turn 70 and that's a bet I would never make now. I would know not to make it. How did Braverman save your life? I was fixing fights for, um, for the mob, for the mafia. And a problem ensued, which I can't talk about. And some consequences ensued, which I also can't talk about. Can you not talk about it because of the magnitude of the fight? I, I can't talk about it from, for a number of reasons. Okay. I can't talk about it for legal reasons. I can't talk about it because the people who are involved are still around and I'm certainly not going to give them up. I'm not going to mention their names. But they decided that they needed to kill me. And they were people who would do that. So I hid. I hid in rural Puerto Rico where I owned a farm. To be more specific, it was a coffee farm atop the highest mountain in Las Marias, Puerto Rico, which other than the seriousness of your life being on the line, that sounds like it might have been paradise. It certainly had elements of paradise uh, to it. Yeah. I mean, I, I still own that farm all these years later. Um, it's, it was, it's gorgeous. You know, it's, it's like being in heaven. But, you know, I realized that these guys were serious guys and that they were looking for me and they did know I was in Puerto Rico. They just didn't know where and it wouldn't have been easy to find me. But, you know, you think about these things, they weigh on you. And I started to think foolishly because I was so frightened. And I thought, well, I know these guys can do this stuff. And... I don't want to have to live my whole life this way. And I know where they are and they don't know where I am, which is not a good way for somebody like me to think I'm not equipped to do it, but that's what I was doing. So they had a, a white heavyweight. They wanted to move. And I talked to Alan. I said, I'm afraid of these guys. I got to do something. And he said, well, Don can always, um, can always use a, a white heavyweight. And you did me a favor with the McNeely thing, and I still owe you for that one. So let's get them in here, and I'll talk to them, and we'll straighten this out. And I decided to do it. I decided I, I wasn't I wasn't confident about it, but I I thought it would be a good idea to come to some conclusion. So I flew into New York, and these mob guys came to Al's office, and we had a meeting. And Al said, look, here's the thing. Charles isn't talking about anything. He's not going to ever mention your names. It's not going to happen. And we can use your kid. You, you want a promotional deal. So I suggest that you, you take it. We're, we're giving you a good offer. Furthermore, if you don't and you still intend to manage this kid, 
he's not going to get a fight anywhere, anywhere in the world. And if he does get a fight, you're going to be very, very sorry that he did. So we end this here and we end it now and it's done. And it's not brought up again. And, and Charles is with us, which is a wise guy term with us, meaning he's under our protection, you know, um, and we agreed. We all shook hands. And that was the last time I saw them. And as you can see, I'm still alive. Yes, you are. And while that's obviously a, a dangerous example of the world that you were residing in at the time, you actually remained relatively unscathed in this world for a, a pretty long while. How were you able to do so? How were you able to not only survive and thrive at times, but also to step away when you finally decided that you wanted to to, uh, to leave that business? Well, I mean, again, I think, you know, I, I don't talk about, I mean, I talk about people, but I talk about people who are um, beyond the reach of any kind of retribution, legal or otherwise. Other than that, I don't talk about anybody. You know, I'll, I can talk about incidents, but I'll never mention who was involved. And I think people knew that about me. And they also knew that I knew a lot. And so uh, this might have been one of those examples where it's best to leave sleep, you know, let sleeping dogs lie. Mm. Um, you know, I, I'm a safe bet. And it, it made more sense it still makes more sense to leave me alone. And that's what happens. Why did you start playing music in public again after 20 years? I wanted, uh, you know, I, I wanted to, I had never stopped playing music on my own. I maintained a same, the same practice schedule I've always maintained. And I was, I'd gotten better. And I thought, I've been away from this for half my life now just about. And I think I've got something to contribute. So let me see if I like it. Let me see if it's, you know, and, and I, I started to rethink the notion of whether or not if you do something artistic, you, you have an obligation to share it. And I don't have a good answer for that. I still don't have a good answer for it, but I thought at the very least, um, I should, I should see what it's like to play in public. And there were also a couple of people in the world who I really wanted to play music with. And I thought, let me record with them and let me do some concerts with them. So I, I tried it. You ended up playing piano in a touring black gospel band throughout the 2000s. What did that teach you about music and life? Well, I mean, I'd played gospel before. I'd played black gospel before, decades earlier. But I... After I came back to the States from Puerto Rico, I was really, really down on my luck. And I was looking for work. And I got offered a job as musical director to a, um, a, a black gospel group, choir and, and band. And I took the job because I needed the money, which is pretty much why I take every job. Um, and I wound up becoming friends with the people in the band who were a bunch of young kids who were just extraordinarily gifted. And I wound up living, they were youngsters, but I wound up sharing apartments with them because I, you know, I didn't really have a place to live at the time and becoming very, very good friends with them and even forming my own band with them. It wasn't a gospel band. But 
what I learned about, I had known about gospel music is that it's a real two-edged sword. You know, it, it provides comfort in some ways, but um, gospel is kind of a hustle. You know, uh, there's a lot of money involved, but it's also selling disenfranchised people a terrible bill of goods. You know, that if you live a certain way, there's, you know, you're going to get a reward in heaven and the reward that you'll get on earth is, you know, it's very unrealistic. And religion's one, Charles, religion's one of the oldest hustles in the book, right? It's one of the oldest hustles in the book. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I was just, you know, I, I thought about the inequity of being as talented as these kids were. And they also, I mean, for what, and coincidentally, they looked like movie stars, you know? And one of them had played in the NFL, the drummer in the band had played in the NFL, you know? Um, and I thought, well, the white counterpart to these guys would be a star in some way. He'd have an easy life. And these guys were, you know, sharing slum apartments and, you know, getting evicted and having the utilities turned off. And they were being hustled by the minister in the, in the band. And, I, you know, again, these are, I, I loved and admired the people in the church. I still love them. You know, they were family to me, but in some ways they were being cheated by an incredibly unfair system. And uh, it's dispiriting. I, you know, I don't know that they would say that. And I'm, you know, I'm speaking for myself. And in a sense, I could be speaking out of school here, you know, because they have a community, they love each other, they're certainly, you know, everybody in that band was capable of having a wonderful time, but their lives weren't easy and their lives weren't ever going to be easy. And I, every once in a while, I'll look them up on YouTube and here they are now, no longer teenagers, but now middle-aged men with families of their own and nothing has changed, you know? And these incredibly gifted, precocious youngsters are now, you know, relatively competent, talented middle-aged men playing exactly the way they did 25 years ago, maybe not quite as well. And they're all heavy, you know, as people tend to get. And, you know, it's, it's a complex conversation. And I think it probably is something we would have to take the, the whole session to go through and we'd only be scratching the surface. Sure. And uh, I guess on that note, Charles, last question. You have lived a life that is straight out of a movie script. Is there any hope, even if in the back of your mind, that this book maybe turns into a movie at some point? Thank you for asking that. Um, everything in the book is true. Everything in the book happened, as I said it did, although not everything that happened is in the book. But I wrote the book, as I said, because I got paid to write it. But my goal for this book is that it get optioned. That's, that's what I want. Um, and so I'd like it to be a movie. I'd like it to be a TV series. And I have an agent and a publicist. And uh, they're just waiting for that phone to ring.
I'd like to start lobbying Martin Scorsese to uh, serve as the director for, let's call it a 10-part Netflix series. A movie is not going to do this book justice. We need like 10 total hours dedicated to your life story. I think that might start to, uh, to serve you well. Thank you so much for pitching that for me. That's exactly, if I were, if I were good at pitching, that's exactly what I would have done. Thank you. <laughs> Absolutely. He is Charles Farrell. He is a guy who has operated just on the other side of the relative edge of what many believe to be good and bad in his life as a jazz pianist and a boxing manager. And he's just written an incredible book about his uniquely wild ride. It's called Low Life, a memoir of jazz, fight fixing, and the mob. Charles, thank you so much for the time today. And thank you for this very entertaining book. Thank you so much, Trey. This is really a pleasure. Join me next time when I speak with Emmy Award-winning journalist and number one New York Times bestselling author Kate Fagan on All the Colors Came Out, a father, a daughter, and a lifetime of lessons. Thanks to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at GentlemanJesus.com. And thanks to you for hanging out. You can listen, learn, and subscribe for free at BooksOnPod.com. For Books on Pod, I'm Trey Elling. Good day. Good day.